Let me give you a little bit of um, background before I begin reading at verse 17. In about 600 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, attacked the city of Jerusalem. And he didn't destroy the city at that time. He just carried away some of the leading citizens of Jerusalem into captivity. Some of the finest young men and women that were a part of the um, city of Jerusalem, he took into slavery, into captivity. And among those men were Daniel and Ezekiel, out of which exile came the great prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel. And there are three other men that he carried away, just the finest young men of the city. And when he got into Babylon, he changed their names and gave them Chaldean names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when you have these kinds of people in captivity with this kind of ego strength and, and power and clout and uh, energy, you have to have some way to control them lest they revolt against your uh, nation. And so he erected a golden image at the palace. Some have suggested that it was a an image to his God, others say it was an image to himself, the king. Probably it was a symbol of allegiance. And um, at a certain time when the music, musical instruments played, everybody was to bow down before the golden image, kind of like we salute the flag and make their allegiance to Babylon known. And those who refused to do that would be punished by being cast into a fiery furnace that was heated to cremate them. And that's where the story picks up beginning at verse 17. Verse 16, really, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this, if it be so. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them, in, cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up, underline that. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded 
and stood up in haste, he responded and said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, certainly, O king. And he answered and said, look, I see four men loosed, underline, and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And the traps, the, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. I've known this story as you have known it from childhood and it has never lost its charm to me. Now I never, I didn't listen a whole lot, I'm afraid to say, to the Sunday school lessons that were taught on Sunday morning as a junior boy. But whenever this story came up, as it often did in the lesson material, I came to, to attention. It's a thrilling story. And as I listened to it or heard it or read it as a boy, it was kind of to me a thrilling novel, a thrilling story, kind of like a James Bond novel without the beautiful women. And I just wondered, you know, how could anybody be as courageous and as thrilling as that? As I listened to the teacher tell about these valiant men. But I want you to know that as I read it today as a gray-haired man, it no longer is just a story of courage and, and, and a story of valiant young men who are willing to lay down their lives for God. But rather, rather I see in this marvelous story some timeless and incontrovertible truths and principles that apply to my life and give me such help and such encouragement now. I want you to know that these timeless, incontrovertible principles and truth are as relevant in this day to this people as they were then. And it is these truths that I want to focus on this morning. Number one, your faith in God does not exempt you from the fiery furnaces of life. I'd like to be able to tell you this morning that if you trust in God, you'll never have any trouble that you'll never feel pain, you'll never have um, 
financial worries, you'll never have any problems in your home. I think I've heard the implication before, and I have mentioned it before, I think, that some people seem to have the idea that if you trust in God, you'll never have any problems. Everything flows smoothly and no hitches ever come. I wish I could tell you that, but I just can't. It's just not true. There is the idea that if you trust in God, it's kind of like being vaccinated, you know, make you immune to all the pains and problems all the hurts and the hassles of life. There is that kind of idea going around. I saw a few months ago a bumper sticker that was a takeoff on the Coke commercial, Things Go Better With God. And the analogy that bumper sticker suggests is that whatever you're up to in life, whatever your dreams or ambitions, whatever your plans, Wherever you place your priorities, however you scale your values, you're going to be better off with God. I wonder if that's really true. I wonder if this morning you could imagine yourself cupping your hands around your mouth and shouting these words, things go better with God, to Moses as his people murmured against him in the wilderness and turned against him. I wonder if you could shout those words to Job as he sits on a pile of ashes, scraping his boils, or to Peter as he prepares to be crucified upside down, or to Paul as he agonizes over his thorn in the flesh, or Jesus as he trudges up Calvary's slopes with a cross on his back. Do things really go better with God in every situation regardless of the circumstance? I tell you, trusting in God will not get you exempt from a fiery furnace in life. It might get you admitted to one seven times hotter than normal. Now, what are the implications of that? I think there are two. I think the first is that your faith and mine must not, must not be tied to any presuppositions about God, any preconditions about his, how he's going to respond under certain situations. You know, we just can't put God in a box. And if your faith is based upon the fact that you believe God will react a certain way and will save you from the fiery furnace, your faith will not be for long. In verse 17, these men said, we believe God can deliver us from this fire. And we think he will, but if not. And I want you to know that it is those but if nots that we have to settle in our lives. That's the real issue. The real issue is not whether we believe God can. The real issue is what are we going to do if he doesn't? And they said, we believe God can deliver us from the fire, and we think He will. But whether He does or not, we'll be loyal subjects to the end. We're not going to deny or betray Him just because things don't turn out like we planned. And that's the kind of faith that trusts God regardless. That's the kind of faith which is really a surrender to God in spite of the circumstances. We are not to say, I'll trust God if such and such happens. We are to say, I'll trust God whatever happens. 
For there's no fine print in the contract that says that if misfortune comes, the contract is no longer binding. And I want you to know that these men expressed perhaps the deepest expression in the Scripture of a faith that was resigned entirely to the will of God. And they asked for no miracle, and they expected none. Theirs was a faith that said, Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And that leads us to the second implication. And this implication is that we must trust God not on the basis of what God does, but on the basis of what God is. For I am convinced that if you have the proper understanding of who God is, you'll rejoice in anything God does. Now they believed certain things about God. They believed Him sovereign, thus He could do, He had the right to do all things. And they believed Him supreme, therefore they believed He would do all things right. And Jack Taylor says, they believed that God was omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Being omniscient, He knew who built the fiery furnace. He knew the patent number and the copyright information. Being omnipresent, he was there when they installed it and, oh, and was the overseer of the installation of it. And being omnipotent, he was greater than the sum total of all the gods in Babylon and all of their decrees. And I suppose that William Lloyd's lines express it pretty well. My times are in thy hands. My God, I wish them there. My life, my soul, my friends, I leave entirely to thy care. My times are in thy hands, why should I doubt or fear? A father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. The first fact is, your faith in God will not get you exempt from trouble. Second truth from this passage is this, that even though God may not save you from the furnace, He will surely save you in it. He did not save Joseph from the dungeon, but He saved him in it. He did not save Daniel from the lion's den, but He saved him in it. He did not save the Apostle Paul from the thorn in the flesh, but He saved him with the thorn in the flesh. He may not spare you from the furnace, but He will save you in it. And verse 25 pictures this, this event. It says that they carried these men, the, the, the hole the, um, in the furnace was at the top. You know, as a kid, I always imagined they had this big door like some furnace where they shoveled in the coal and when they opened the door, the flames spewed out and these men were, but the, but the entrance, the hole was at the top. And so they climbed up to the top and the flames were so great that the people carrying them were destroyed. When they dropped them down into the furnace and they hit the floor, it says that they just got up and were uh, freed from their bonds and they were walking around. No panic. It wasn't this frantic uh, racing to the nearest exit to get out of there. They just took a kind of a Sunday stroll around the furnace. I can um, just hear Abednego saying, hey, Shad, come over here and look at the way they built this thing. That's yeah, amazing. You know, just kind of walking around in flames. And verse 27 says that it emphasizes the, from the greater to the lesser, and he says, 
that no harm came to their bodies. Their hair wasn't even singed. That's the most flammable part of you. Their clothes were not burned, and they didn't even experience any smoke damage. And I don't know if your Bible has a footnote or not, but it says in my Bible there, there was no harm in them. And I wonder what the, what the pronoun them, what does that refer to? Perhaps to the flames. There was no harm in them. There were flames, but no harm in them. Thomas Edison experienced a great fire, destroyed all of his experiments, all of his papers, all of his equipment, and he is walking through the rubble of that fire in his laboratory, and he saw his little bundle of papers that somehow in the, in the freak of that fire were not consumed, were not destroyed. They were bound with string. When he reached down to pick, it, pick up the little bundle of papers, singed on the outside by the fire, the string fell off, and there was under the first paper his picture. And he reached down and took a piece of cold charcoal, a piece of the rubble, and he wrote across his picture, it didn't touch me beyond the reach of trouble. And Alexander McLaren has a sermon on this text he calls harmless fire. There was fire, but there's no harm in it. Perhaps the them referred to the Hebrew children. Not only did the fire cause no harm to them, the fire caused no harm in them. He may not save you from the fire, but he'll save you in it. And I know two verses of Scripture that bear it out. Let me read them to you. The first is over in the book of Isaiah. I need to give you a little background to this verse. One day I was in my study in my quiet time and I was reading through the prophecy of Isaiah and I came to this 43rd chapter of Isaiah and I was reading, it says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Now it didn't say if you pass through the waters, it said when. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It says, and through the rivers they will not overflow you. He says, when you walk through the fire, didn't say if you go through the fire, it says when you go through the fire, you will not be scorched. I made some notations in my Bible and closed it and my phone rang. Ken Washburn was on the telephone. He said, have you heard about Paul Oliver? I asked Paul's permission to share this this morning. He gave that permission. He said, Paul just found out yesterday that he has leukemia. And I said, I cannot believe that. I don't believe it. I hadn't heard it. And I said, I'll go right out there. He said, I know I've just, I've seen them. They're so distressed, he and Melba. I got in my car. I went out to their house, sat down in their living room. And we were all in tears and anxiety and concern. And I said, Paul, could you bring me your Bible? I want to share something that God has given me today. And he brought his Bible in, and I read these verses of Scripture. I just read to your hearing. When you pass through the fire, you will not be scorched. And I shared with them what God had said to my mind, my heart, 
I may not save you in, from the fire, but I'll save you in it. Now, Paul still has leukemia, but he's been a year without chemotherapy. And when I asked him this permission last week, if I could use this illustration, he said, you know, I went back on my anniversary of a year without treatment, and the doctor said, you're a, still a miracle to me. And he said, every morning when I go through my quiet time, I have my quiet time, I ask God, what is the purpose of my life? Why are you keeping me here? And I think I know the purpose of God saving him in the fire in order that he might lead us in this marvelous television ministry to which he is committed. He may not save you from the trouble, but he'll save you in it. And the second verse of Scripture that I want to read, just kind of nail that down, is 1 Peter chapter 1. And verse 4 says, after verse 3, verse 3 saying, that you've been begotten again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4 says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven, period. Now he said, I'm going to give you this inheritance and it's reserved and protected in heaven. Then he says in verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now verse 4 says, I have this inheritance that I am preserving and protecting for you. Verse 5 says, I am preserving and protecting you for the inheritance. Now somebody might give you, leave a million dollars in their will. They might put you a name in their will to inherit a million dollars. And you can claim that upon their death. But who's going to guarantee you're going to be alive when they die? See, they may put a million dollars in your will and they outlive you and you never enjoy it. Peter says that this is the promise of God. I have this inheritance for you. I'm saving for you. And I'm going to save you for the inheritance and if you believe Bill Heimer's book, Destined for the Throne, he even says that everything we go through in life is just perfection for the inheritance that God has for us, just getting us ready for it. He'll not save you from the fire, he'll save you in it. Third truth. It is oftentimes in the fire, from the furnace, that we have our greatest witness. I'm sure as the king looked in there, his eyes must have come out on sticks. And he saw these men, three of them at the beginning, now four. And as he looked, he said, there were three and now there are four. And the fourth is like the son of the gods. Perhaps an angel walking around in the furnace. I believe it was uh, Francis Schaeffer's book that I was reading said, well, that was Jesus in that, that, that furnace because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that it was Jesus who accompanied the Israelis out into the wilderness and he said they drank from the self-same rock and that rock was Christ. He was with them in the wilderness. I suppose it's true that when 
These, children, these young men were carried away by, within their shackles, in their bonds to, to, to Babylon, that God was with them. For the psalmist said, Lo, I'm with you. Uh, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. I know he was there. And I'm sure that when the image was erected, they knew God was present, and he was but he was invisible to the heathen eye. He was unseen to the unbeliever until they were cast in the furnace and then they saw him. I want you to listen carefully. I want you to hear this. Sometimes God is never really seen in your life until you go into the furnace, the crucibles of suffering. That's where God sometimes is seen more clearly. It's kind of like you take a diamond and the best way to see that diamond's brilliance and, and beauty is to put it against a dark background. Did I tell you about the time I bought my wife a diamond necklace? I was walking down Pampas, Pampa, Texas street and I passed Zales Jewelry and there it was one of those heart necklaces that I'd always wanted to get her. She's worth that. And it had been so expensive everywhere I'd looked before. And man, it, I'm not going to tell you how much it was, but it wasn't that expensive. Just there on that, that window, it was laying on this black choker, and boy, it was shining. I mean, it put your eyes out. And I went in there and uh, trusting a good love offering for that revival, I clamped down my money and I bought that, that sucker. I took it home and presented it to my wife. And when I opened that box in the light, you know, like the light of this room, I thought they had given me the wrong necklace. It didn't shine. It wasn't, it wasn't brilliant. It wasn't sparkling. Same necklace. It just looks different when you put it against the ebony, the black background. Now, if your goal in life is to go through life comfortably, no problems, everything's smooth, no, everything's cool, no problems, then you're going to resent the furnaces that come and you're going to chafe under them. But if your objective in life is to exalt the Lord Jesus, whether by living or dying, said the Apostle Paul, if your goal in life is to glorify God, then you may welcome the furnace. Because it is in the furnace, it is in the fire, it is in the crucible of suffering and your commitment to God in all of that, that God is most clearly seen in all His glory. And so that preacher friend of mine who was dying with cancer said to me, said, Gerald, I'm absolutely certain that I can have a greater impact upon the people I minister unto if God doesn't heal me from this disease than I can if He does. I want you to know that God can save you from, God can deliver you from the furnace of life. But if He does deliver you, no one may be ever, ever able to see the deliverer. And the key is not 
that I be delivered from the furnaces. The key is that the people around me will see the deliverer in my life. There's one other truth I want to share with you from this text. It's this. For the people of God, the only thing the fire will destroy are the things that bind you. It's no insignificant thing that says that they were cast into the furnace, bound. They were tied up hand and foot. And when they were thrown in the furnace, the only thing the fire destroyed was the thing that had kept them from walking around with Jesus. We are bound by so many things. Some of us are bound by fears, fears of failure, fears of what people are going to say, what we're going to look like. We are bound by so many fears, fears of rejection. And some of us are bound by hate. We have all of this bitterness and all of these grudges that have bound us. And we've not been able to walk with the Lord because of all this bondage, all this hate, all this bitterness. And some are bound by an unforgiving spirit and some by impatience and some are intolerant and some by anxiety and some by worries and dreads. And there are all these things that have us bound. And the only things that the furnace destroys for God's people are the things that keep you bound. And there in the fiery furnace, the bondages were consumed. The fire devoured those things that kept them from walking with Jesus. And that's a good day when that happens. This story, and I'm through. Perhaps the greatest preacher I've ever heard was a preacher named Charles Howard. He was for many years professor of Bible and New Testament at, Bowie, at Campbell College in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. He wasn't really discovered as a preacher until he was about 70 years of age. And so there's so many sermons that man could preach that nobody ever heard. But somebody heard him preaching somewhere and he just caught their imagination. And so after he'd retired as a Bible teacher, they began to ask him to preach at the conventions in Texas and the evangelism conferences. And he was just one of the most popular preachers for about 10 years before his death. He said one day a man came into his office in Campbell College in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina and said, Charlie, could you go with me today to Raleigh? My wife left me a couple of weeks ago and I know where she is. She's down in Raleigh at a house of prostitution and I'd like for you to go with me and beg her to come back. I'll forgive her. I'll accept her. I love her. The children need her. He said, first thought came to my mind, what if somebody sees me going up the sidewalk to that house of prostitution in Raleigh, North Carolina? You know, what are they going to think? But he said, I could have turned my friend down and reject his 
plea, his invitation. So he said, we got in our car and headed to Raleigh. All the way down there, I was praying. Sometimes I was praying audibly, sometimes just under my breath, but I was pouring out my heart to God. He said, we got to that house of prostitution in Raleigh. We got out of the car and started up the sidewalk. He said, I was kind of looking around. Cars were coming by, and I was kind of, you know, hiding my head. We got to the door, and he said, we rang the doorbell, and the matron came to the door. And they told her why they were there. He said, I'm so-and-so. I've came to, come to see my wife. Could you, could you tell her that I'm here? And he said, when the woman came to the door, she had this bitter scowl on her face. And she said, what are you doing here? What do you want? He began to plead with her his love beg her to come back home, and she scoffed at him and laughed. And he said, right there on that porch, he said, my friend fell down on his knees, and he began to pour out his heart to God in prayer. He said, I, I got down on my knees too, you know, after a bit. And he said, I felt God move in to the front porch of that house of prostitution in Raleigh, North Carolina. He said, as that preacher poured, as that friend poured out his heart to God in prayer, he said, in a little bit, I heard some tears drop on the porch. And he said, when we finished praying, she said, just a minute, I'll get my clothes. And he said, we went on out to the car and got in the car, and we were kind of awed by what had happened. We were quiet. And he said, the man's wife got her grip, got her bags, got in the car as we started back home. She said, where's the other, where's the other person? Where's the other man? And the husband said, well, there wasn't anybody but just Charlie and me. And she said, oh, I know there was another man on that porch. I saw him standing there while you were praying. And the third was likened to the Son of God. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence now because we've been struggling and wrestling with our own faith, our own trust our own reliance, our own resignation to the will of God. We bow in your presence today to ask you to strengthen our faith. Help us just to believe, to trust you. Help us to make that commitment of life and heart, mind and soul and spirit to the God who made us, created us, without reservation. And I pray that if we lack that kind of commitment, we shall be able to say, Lord, I believe, I trust. Here's my life today. This is our prayer in Jesus' name for his sake. Now there are three invitations this morning. The first invitation...
is for you to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. The Scripture said, The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, the word of faith that we believe. And if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Salvation is as near as your next breath. It's as near as calling upon Jesus to save you. We invite you to come and say, I want to give my heart and life to Christ. I want to be saved. Angels will rejoice when God's wanderer comes home. Come to give your heart to Christ this morning. Second invitation is for you to come and place your life in the church. And say, That's where, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to serve God. He has chosen the church as the way to get the gospel to the world. Come into this fellowship with us. We need you. Or maybe you need to come to say, I just need to walk closer with the Lord. I've been bound by so many bondages. And I've not been walking with Jesus. I want to begin anew. I want to get back with God. Start anew. Maybe you've trusted Christ in the privacy of your own home. You'll want to come publicly this morning to make that commitment known. We're going to stand. The choir will sing. We invite you to come. On the first word, you come while we sing.